Well, thanks for being here this morning. I hope you all had a great uh, Thanksgiving. If you're at home online, it's great to be with you as well. As we wrap up this series that we've been in the past several weeks, so if you're, you're new with us, we've been in the book of Revelation looking at Jesus' seven letters to seven different churches. Now, as we wrap up, I was thinking about something this week and that there's a reality in my life, and it's probably true in your life as well, is that there's things that you know to be true, things that you shouldn't do, and yet you decide to do them time and time again. Now, an example that comes to mind might not be what you're thinking about, but like I'll make food like frozen food. Okay, track with me for a second. I'll get the box out of the freezer and I'll take it to my countertop and I'll read the instructions. On the instructions, it tells you um, what temperature you should set the oven to. Uh, it usually tells you how to prepare the food, whether it should be covered or uncovered, and how long you should cook the food. So I'll take the food out, put it in the oven, and I'll take that box and I'll throw it in the trash can. 60 seconds later, I have forgotten what was written on that box. And so what do I have to do? I have to go into the trash can to get the box out. I can remember things from when I was eight years old, but I can't remember what the instructions said 60 seconds ago. Now you would say that I would have learned by now, but at 40 years old, still I do this cycle over and over and over again. I keep repeating it over and over and over again. Do you have this problem? Am I the only one? How about you? Are there things in your life where you say, this is the definition of insanity, where I keep doing the same things over and over again? Any procrastinators? Does anybody struggle with procrastination here? A few honest people in church this morning. My Uncle Brad was notorious for procrastination when it came to Christmas time. Like he knows that he's supposed to shop for Christmas gifts. And yet every year he would wait until Christmas Eve to get the gifts. And so we'd gather and we would exchange the gifts. And so this was before Amazon and online shopping. So by the time he got to Walmart or wherever the store was, there's nothing left on the shelves. And so what did Uncle Brad do? He shopped at the gas station. So you can imagine being eight years old and being handed scratch tickets and an oil filter. Merry Christmas. But we all have a little bit of Uncle Brad in us where we know things that are true that we shouldn't do and yet we do them over and over again. Another way of explaining this is knowing the truth doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. Now here's the deal. This word submit in Christian circles can bring about a negative context. People struggle with this idea of submission. But submission in and of itself is actually a good thing because someone that's open to submitting is open to persuasion. And if you're the type of person that's open to be persuaded, it means that you're also the type of person that lives with a growth mindset. That you're the type of person that likes to learn, adapt, and align themselves with something bigger or better than yourself. And if we look at the 66 books of the Bible, if we look at from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, it points us to something that we all long for, freedom and joy. But what we discover is that freedom and joy is found only when we live under the authority of Jesus. The Laodicean church knew this, 
and yet they began to drift away. If you have your Bible, turn to the last book, Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have required wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, with each of these letters, Jesus doesn't introduce himself as the, it is I, Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these letters, there's a characteristic of who Jesus is. And so in verse 14, we're reminded that the person that's writing this, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Each of these characteristics matter because when someone says to you, hey, I'm looking at your life and it makes me wanna vomit, who's saying that? will make or break your response. Because when someone's for you, enough that they would die for you sacrificially, and you think about their mercy and grace and love for you, you'll lean into what they have to say. And it's not ouch that hurts, it's ouch that helps. And so throughout this series, we've looked at each of these locations. And if you missed week one, so you have the apostle John, he's the author. John was part of Jesus's inner circle. He got to see things that not everybody got to see. And so Jesus shows up on the island of Patmos. Why is John there? Because of persecution. The government said, you're a problem. We're going to get rid of you. But while he's there, Jesus shows up, pulls back the curtain of reality and says, I want you to see reality in terms of how I see reality. And so the Lord raises up messengers. Each of these letters says to the angel of Pergamum or Smyrna or Ephesus, angel being the word messenger. And so there's seven messengers, seven leaders of these churches that carry this communication to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then this morning where we wrap things up is the church of Laodicea. Now location-wise, located in a river valley, which is interesting, in a few moments we'll start to talk about the lack of water in that location, but this was a place where it was known for its banking, commerce, things like selling sandals, wool garments, and this fancy eye ointment. But it was also known for uh, being a part of the Roman judicial system because part of what they prided themselves on was their ability to obey Roman law. This was actually a city that flourished under Roman rule. In fact, the name Laodicea comes from two Greek words, which essentially means they were ones that lived according to the law of the land. They were good law-abiding folk. 
But Jesus shows up and says, hey, you're doing a great job when it comes to obeying the law of the land, but not so much when it comes to my instructions, when it comes to my commandments. And because they were so well off financially, they began to write Jesus off entirely. And so today's ouch that helps message from Jesus to this church is this. It's possible for a church to be physically rich, but spiritually bankrupt. Someone once said that bankruptcy happens gradually and then suddenly. This was a church that knew the gospel. They knew the truth. But as they drifted away from the truth, they became further and further away from God. The gospel is not just an invitation to know Jesus. The gospel is a lens in which we live our lives and how we lead at home and how we lead in the community. And they drifted away. And the lens in which they chose to live their life was their physical wealth. And so in verse 15, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now in our culture, lukewarm is a metaphor for being non-committal, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. If you think about a beverage, a beverage can be enjoyed hot, like it's soothing or cold, it's refreshing. Jesus is saying, I've surveyed your life. I've looked at how you're, you're living uh, your life, how you're choosing to invest your time, talent, and treasures. Now the six letters, first six letters, Jesus at least tries to say, hey, here's some things that are going well, some encouragement. And then he'll shift and say, but these are the things I hold against you. But not so much in this letter. Jesus is saying, I wish that you were good for something. But as I've looked at your life, it makes me sick. Now, context-wise, it's interesting because if you were to go to this location, Laodicea did not have a great water source. So other locations, they could go to hot springs and enjoy like, the hot, soothing waters or a nice cold water, but not Laodicea. For them to get water, the water would be transported through these stones with these pipes. And so the, the sun would hit the stones, heat the stones, and the stones would then heat the water. And so by the time the water would make its way to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So you can imagine working outside in the hot of the day, or maybe you've been traveling for quite some time and you're parched, and you want water, and what you're handed is lukewarm water, it would be nauseating. You might even spit it out of your mouth. That's the experience that Jesus is describing here. The sin that's present in the lives of this community disgusted Jesus, but he doesn't give up on them. Hang in there. Verse 17, he says, you say I am rich, which the first part of this statement is not a problem in of itself if we understand that every good thing comes from God and God provides wealth. There's nothing pro problematic about this statement, but what comes next is problematic. They were saying, I am rich and I, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, the Laodiceans physical wealth led them to forget their spiritual poverty. That apart from God, ultimately, they have nothing. See, the problem with wealth is that it makes you vulnerable to pride. 
you start to look at what you've accomplished and what you've accomplished, uh, uh, accumulated over time, and you say, I'm, I'm self-sufficient. I'm in charge. Look what I've done. Look at all that I have. And then God gets put in the background. And Tuesday morning Bible study, we're going through the, the book of Daniel. And this past week in the men's group, we were learning about King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, he accumulated quite a fortune and a kingdom. And some of the things that he was able to accomplish during his reign was quite impressive. And yet in chapter 4, what you see is him surveying all that he did and said, look at me. Look what I've accomplished. I'm a really big deal. And pastor and author J.D. Creer explains pride in this way. He says, pride results from failing to see every good thing comes from God and wrongly assuming that each lasts forever. When we say that every good thing comes from God, it's the understanding that if we have wealth, statistically speaking, if we're born into this country, God has set us up towards wealth. And it is God that decides where we're born. And also the family that you're born into is an indicator of statistically speaking in terms of whether you'll be wealthy or not. And it is God that raises up and decides our parents. And if you have skills, talents, and abilities, it is the Lord who provides those talents, skills, and abilities. And if you're born into a family that has wealth and that's passed on generationally, again, that's an example of God's providence. And if you're fortunate to have education or to live in a country that protects the workers' rights, all of that is an example of God's providence. And at the same time, what God supplies, he can also deny. Just as much as he provides it, he can take it away. And the moment that we start to adopt this mindset where we fail to see that everything good comes from God and that we assume that it's going to last forever, pride is settled in to our relationship, not just with God, but with one another. Because one of the outcomes of pride is that it is a relationship killer. When pride settles into your marriage, it can begin to erode trust. When pride settles into how you parent your children, when pride settles into how you lead in the workplace, when pride shows up in your friendships, and when pride shows up in your relationship with Jesus, it's a relationship killer. And that's where the Laodicean church was at. So here are six things that we should be cautious of. These are things that would have been present in the Laodicean mindset. Competitiveness. There's nothing wrong with saying, I desire excellence. That when I show up to work, I'm a representative of Jesus. So I want to work hard. I want to steward my time well. That's a good work ethic. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we shift and say, I am the best. Look what I've done and look what I've accomplished. I'm better than they are. Pride has settled in. So Friday, I'm setting up Christmas lights outside my neighborhood. So, very cliche, we have one blow up at the Ryerson household, and it's Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus. Of course, you would expect the pastor to have baby Jesus in his front yard, right? So I'm setting up the Christmas lights, and next door, love our neighbors, I'm looking up at like the 30-foot Grinch. 
and the 30-foot, like, nutcracker guy, and my little six-foot Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. And I'd be lying if I didn't have grand schemes or visions of, what if baby Jesus was like the Macy's Day parade float status, just hovering above our house, like, this is the kingdom of God. I'm competitive by nature. That's how God has wired me. But if I'm not careful, pride settles in, and I fall prone to the comparison trip trap. I start comparing my life to those around me. And when that happens, we're no different than King Nebuchadnezzar. We're no different than the Laodicean church. Ingratitude. Probably the way to, to understand this is that if you've been around really grateful people, they're usually really humble people. If you notice people that just say thank you over and over again, or I so appreciate you, thanks for doing that, they're probably some of the most humble people that you know. And yet the flip side of this is also true, that when we lack humility, we lack gratitude. Look at my gifts, my talents, my abilities, isn't followed by thank you, or I'm grateful for what I have. Entitlement, when entitlement sets in, you start to say to yourself, this isn't fair. It's funny, my kids say this all the time, that's not fair. And you would think that it's just a childhood thing, but if we're honest, it bleeds into our adulthood. Look what I've done. Because of what I've accomplished, things should be different. And so we begin to blame others. Overconfidence. There's nothing wrong with having confidence in Jesus. Like if he can raise from the dead, I believe that God's gonna do great things for the kingdom of God, but when it becomes confidence in our talents and our abilities, we've drifted away. Self-will. Here's something that convicted me this week as I thought about this question. Do you seek the Lord's will only after you've sought out your own will and it didn't work out for you? Like, is the Lord's will plan B? Like I had my plan, my agenda, my desires, and it didn't work out. So now I'm gonna cycle back and say, well, maybe this isn't what the Lord has for me. I see this in my life. And the convicting thing is, if that's true of me, and if it's true of you, it means that we're more confident in our abilities than the Lord's abilities. And that's pride. The last one. Stinginess. Think Ebenezer Scrooge. He had nobody to thank but himself, right? Because everything was his accomplishment. What he had performed and what he had achieved. And that callousness led to a lack of empathy and a lack of love for the poor, the marginalized, and those that were without. Pride is the destroyer of relationships. And it had settled into this church in Laodicea. And it can settle into our church if we're not careful. Verse 18. So Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Wait a minute. Jesus just said moments ago that you are poor and pitiful. And yet now he's leading the church to say, I want you to buy gold. If you're poor, you're not gonna have the finances to buy gold. So what's Jesus up to here? He's preaching the gospel. 
he's reminding them that without him, we are poor. We have nothing to offer him and he has everything to offer us. But often we don't discover this in our relationship apart from trial, persecution, hardship, or difficult circumstances. It's when we're being refined in the fire. But this church, Laodicea, didn't have persecution. They were comfortable. And when we're comfortable, that's, we're so, that's when we're so vulnerable because we don't drift towards the Lord. We say we've got it all figured out. So Jesus, again, preaches the gospel and he says, in white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Well, what's he referencing here? Well, we sung about it earlier, that through the blood of Jesus, our sins are washed away, that we're white as snow, as you will, that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so when we turn to King Jesus and we pledge our allegiance to him, that inheritance is transferred to us. And so Jesus says in the salve, which was this eye ointment uh, that they would put on their eyes, he's saying, you're gonna need more than this eye ointment to see reality. What you need is the good news. What you need is to preach the gospel to yourself. What you need to do, he's saying, is repent. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. When I was growing up, my parents got divorced when I was five years old. And when my mom decided to move back to the United States, we were living in London at the time, she quickly got into another relationship. And a couple years later, she got married. I did not mesh with my stepdad. To this day, it's a relationship that brings back painful memories. In fact, the you know, stereotypical thing that a mom might see, you just wait till your father gets home. Like those words to me, like I cringe inside. Like go to your room and wait for your stepfather to get home. So I'd go to my room and I'd close the door. And for me, as I waited for him to come home, to walk up the stairs and hear that knock on the door, for me, what I was feeling inside was not love, but was fear and guilt and shame and a little bit of anger because the way that he was going to speak to me and treat me made me mad inside. Now, flip side of that is that by God's providence, I got to move in with my grandparents during my high school years. And when my grandfather would come up those stairs and he would knock on the door, what I was feeling on the other side was love. Because when he chose to discipline, it was through the lens of both truth and grace. And I knew that he was for me because I had seen the sacrifices that they had made for me through the years so that they could be ever more present in my life. Let me ask you something. When you show up to church and the Holy Spirit begins to convict you, you look at that list and you say, that's me, that's me. Yep, struggle with that. Or you show up to Bible study and you're reading the word of God. It's like a mirror reflecting where you're at and you're convicted. You're sitting across the table at a coffee shop with some friends that love you enough to speak a hard truth and you're convicted. 
you're having a hard conversation with your spouse and they're pointing out some things, some shortcomings in your life and they're sharpening you and you're convicted and Jesus is knocking on the door and you hear his voice. How do you feel inside when you hear his voice? For some, it's like that coach that just ripped you to shreds. They're just there to to discipline you, to tell you all the things that you're not good at, or it's like the parent, you can never measure up. You can never perform enough. Maybe it's just that friend that you're kind of indifferent about. You're never gonna follow them. They're just a friend, they're an acquaintance, but you're not gonna lean into the hard thing that they're about to say. Or when you hear the voice of Jesus on the other side of the door, is it the bridegroom? Is it the bridegroom that has showed up to woo you back into his presence? Let me tell you about Jesus. When Jesus shows up on the other side of the door, this is who's waiting for us. Jesus is patient. He is kind. He's without envy, boasting, or pride. When Jesus shows up in your life, he's not there to dishonor you. He's not self-seeking, and he's not easily hangered. When Jesus shows up, he's not there to say, here's the list of wrongs. It's not like Santa and the naughty and nice list. Jesus does not delight in the evil in your life that is harming you, but instead he's there to rejoice with you in truth. When Jesus shows up, he's there to protect you. He's worthy of your trust. He's always pointing towards hope and he's always there to persevere. And the love that he offers you never fails. If that's who's on the other side of the door, why wouldn't we open it? Why wouldn't we listen? Why wouldn't we let him in? And here's the great thing. The moment we do, Jesus says, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Listen, American dinners, way different than how dinner works in other parts of the world. If you've traveled, if you've gone to other places across the world and you've had like a meal with different cultures, It's not like how we do it in this country. Like if we have dinner together, because not every family has dinner together, it's usually like 20 minutes, let's just eat, talk about our day, and then go about our business. But in other parts of the world and in the early church, it was a long, slow process. Like the the food itself was not the main point. The main point was being in the presence of one another, connecting with one another. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm inviting you in. What Jesus is saying is you need to slow down because your pursuit of the values and treasures of this world is getting in the way of you resting in my presence. Come in, sit with him, be present with him. That was the solution for that church. And it might be the solution for this church, my relationship with the Lord, your relationship with the Lord. Jesus says this, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me 
on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down on my father, or sat down with my father on his throne. This is what we call the great exchange. It's on the cross that the Jesus takes the, the wrath of God, like for every sin, past, present, and future, like he takes on that for us. That's, he's taking on what, what we rightfully deserve. And in exchange, we get what he rightfully deserves. Like the inheritance that's promised to Jesus is now promised to us. And so Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As the band comes back up on stage, we've had a rhythm in our church this year through the New City Catechism. And every week there's a prayer, there's a verse, there's a question and an answer. In the past two weeks, we've been talking about a meal. I think it's appropriate that we think about that this morning, given Jesus' instruction. He wants to have a meal with us. And this week's question has to do with the Lord's Supper, and does that add anything to the work of Christ on the cross? And the answer is no. We don't do that to earn something from God. We do that to remember what he's given to us through the broken body of Christ the blood that was poured out through the cross, atoned, covering up sins past, present, and future. But when Paul talks about having communion, he says that we ought to search our hearts. The psalmist says that we should search our hearts and see if there's any offensive way within us. One of the beauties about having a meal is that you have a conversation. And so this morning, my invitation to us is to have a conversation with God. Confession is something that we get to do. Maybe you grew up in a faith background where to confess you had to go to a place and you had to talk to a person. As followers of Jesus, we go to Jesus. We speak directly to him. We confess our shortcomings. And so as you think about it this morning, you're in good company. In fact, I'll just prove it to you. Of those six items on that list from the Laodicean church, how many of us identified with at least one on the list? The scriptures say that we all fall short of the glory of God. So this morning, would you confess the sin in your life that's holding you back from enjoying the freedom and joy that God has for you? But at the same time, but you preach the gospel to yourself. The gift of God's grace is free. His mercy is sufficient. And would you ask for the strength to repent, to change your mind, to change your thinking. And if you're not sure how to put that into words, we've helped, we'll help you out with this simple prayer. You might just say, Heavenly Father, may we come to your table with repentant hearts, putting away pride, and self-sufficiency and enjoying the free grace you offer to us. And after a few minutes, the band's gonna lead us in a song that you may or may not be familiar with, but the song is written through the lens of confession and it's written through the lens of an opportunity to return to the presence of Jesus. Let's take some, let's take some time now and reflect and pray.